Welcome to this broadcast of Conversations, uh, stories from the faculty of the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Today, Dave, my co-host, Dave Norris. Always a pleasure to be here, my friend. And uh, I have with me today Rebecca Rice, Dr. Rebecca Rice, whose focus is on um, organizational communication and risk. But Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Rebecca, I want to start by kind of asking you something really interesting because I I think that uh, your the thing you study is so fascinating. Why risk? Did you grow up fearing for your life or what happened? This is a great question, Kevin. And I have not really pieced together why I study such horrible things until recently. Um, yeah, so I study natural disasters, community collaborations after disasters, particularly fires. I've also looked at event security, mass casualty incidents, um, and COVID, because we all looked at COVID in 2020. And I was actually realizing, and I think we'll get to risk professions later, that I grew up with two risk professionals. Um, first was my dad, who just retired from a large insurance company that will preserve the anonymity of, I guess. And... I have really distinct memories of him. He took my brother to see a junkyard that was only cars that had been crashed in DUIs as a kid. Wow. So if we want to unlock my brother's trauma, it probably is that. Um, But, you know, he was very a control the controllables. What can you do to keep yourself safe? Um, And he still is like that. So I think that way all the time. And then my mom retired also was a flight attendant and Mm -hmm. her job seemed like the safest job in the world to me until fifth grade, September 11th. And she, I remember her waking me up and she was in her flight attendant uniform and she said, I need you to come see something. Don't worry, I'm going to call in sick today. And that really messes you up as a kid, right? Because then you think every time your parent goes to work, are they going to be okay? Um, And I think that that was the ultimate draw for me at first was security and how do we deal with security in the U.S.? at the local level. Um, but I think my dad's my dad's job also informs my life in ways that I didn't recognize when I first started out. Now, he was an insurance investigator? Um, he is an insurance uh, manager, so he manages the claims agents, so okay. the folks you call when you crash your car. Well, I, th- I think it's also interesting that your brother now is in kind of a risky job as well. Yeah, so my brother is a land ranger at a state Um, park. So it's kind of like a national park, but it's in Colorado. It's a state park. And Kevin and I were talking earlier. um, I went to see my brother recently and I accidentally turned into my researcher self when I was talking to him. He works in a park that has really wild rapids for rafting. So class four and five rapids. And we were talking and one of the things that kind of came out, and this is what happens when your sister is a researcher, she starts asking you questions, um, is that he didn't know when he started the job that he would likely see a couple of casualties a year because of the, the rapids. So he has come upon several scenes where people have fallen out of boats before. Um, and it was interesting to talk to him about, you know, did you expect that? How do you and your coworkers talk about that? How do you cope with it after it happens? Which are kind of actually questions I ask people in my research all the time. But I had never thought my own brother is also dealing with that in his daily job. And how did he feel about you asking him those type of questions? 
Well, like many great interview participants, uh, first of all, I think people love to be interviewed even when they seem scared by it because how truly even so I'm an organizational communication researcher even your own family how many questions do they ask you about your job not very many right no one wants to listen to you talk about your job for an hour but I do that's my job and I love to do that so I think like a lot of my previous interview participants he had not thought about these ideas about his job until he said them out loud. So interviews are also part of sense making. And he was saying, oh, that's a really good point. I guess I hadn't thought about that. But now that you're mentioning it, I do deal with it in these ways. So uh, maybe he was just being, he was humoring me, but. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. But tell me, you grew up um, in uh, Arizona, yes. in Phoenix. So um Tell me about growing up in Phoenix and everything and what got you to be interested in communications as a, a career. Yeah, Phoenix is an anecdoteless place to grow up in. It's very trendy now, but in the 90s, it was it was a very sterile environment. <laughs> um, the mountains are lovely uh, and the downtown is great now. But at the time, it was like there is nothing to do in this town. It is hot. So in high school, I was in the marching band, actually. And but randomly in biology class, you never know where life is going to take you. The, the, the people who sat behind me in biology class were like, Rebecca, you're pretty funny when you do talk. Believe it or not, I was very shy. You should join the speech and debate team. And I had no idea what that was. But I showed up because my friends were there and they taught me how to speak competitively. And suddenly you're asking your parents to buy you a suit that you can wear on a Saturday and you're 15 years old and you're at a tournament for 16 hours debating, you know, current events around the prime minister of various European countries. <laughs> and I had an economist subscription in high school. Like what a weird activity <laughs> it was. Um, but then I got to college and I, I did not know communication was a field. I, I think I started out as a pre-law major and then I was an economics major. I switched majors six times freshman year. And then just, I just freshman year. Yes, just freshman year. I was trying to find myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I had to take public speaking as part of the pre-law requirement. And I got there and I, I remember so distinctly thinking, what do you mean there are theories about this? Like, I've been doing this stuff for years as a hobby, and you're now telling me that people have tested this and they can tell me why this kind of attention grabber works and this one doesn't, or why you need to connect with your audiences. And the theories just started to follow me around. So I kept taking the classes, and that's how I became a comm major. And uh, then I just never stopped being a comm major, I guess. <laughs> and that was at Northern Arizona. Yeah, University, that was right? at Northern Arizona University, Flagstaff. Which is where you met uh, your husband. That is true. Yes, I met my husband in a freshman English class. Oh, really? Well, tell us about that. We want to hear <laughs> how did that come about? You, I've, I've listened to this podcast, and I'm aware that meeting spouses in a, is an important anecdote on this podcast so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, my husband and I were in the same English class freshman year. It was at 8 a.m., I am a morning person. He is not. The class was in my dorm, like in the bottom floor of my dorm. He had to walk a fair distance to this 8 a.m. class. So I would get there in my PJs, thriving, like love English classes, love 8 a.m. classes. He would get there wrapped in like a beanie and six layers, not happy to be there. And truly, <laughs> I, I really do believe in intuition, but I never noticed him because I loved the class. I loved books. I had my little chatty friends in the corner. The very last class period, for some reason, he took the beanie off. And I remember looking over and being like, who is this guy who's been in this <laughs> class the whole time? It was like I had never seen him before. And I, I really had a weird feeling of 
not like I'm going to marry this person, right? But I had a feeling of this person needs to be in my life in some way. And I befriended him based off of that feeling. Fortunately, he decided to ask me out instead of just be my friend. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, so th- from there, you went to Montana. Yes, I did. Why go to, I mean, it's kind of, I guess, northern Arizona. Oh, we're not north enough. Let's go to Montana. <laughs> we go, well, talk about extremes, right? You know, yeah, from, yeah. from different climates, at least. Yeah, Flagstaff, fun fact, um, from my time as an admissions intern in Flagstaff, Flagstaff gets more snow than Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Really? So it is an intensely snowy place to live, actually. Um, but Montana I have no idea why I moved to Montana. I just, I had lovely mentors at the undergraduate level, and they invited me to apply to various master's programs. And one of them had gone to Montana for her undergrad. And she said, it's a fantastic program. It's just a great place to be. Similarly, on an intuitive level, I went to visit it. It was not cute when I went to visit, right? It was January in Montana. Oh, Missoula, January is not that pretty. I mean, Missoula is very cute, but everywhere when it's been beaten with enough snow. It's not so scenic. Um, But I just felt like, oh, this seems like a really great place where people are very collegial and people really got along and wanted to know why I was there and what I was interested in. So yeah, I just packed up my life and moved to Montana completely by myself, which is now a weird out-of-body experience for me to just move to Montana like that. But it was was a wonderful time. It's a great master's program. Um, it's, It's a very collegial place. It's also... A lot of people come from out of state to that program. So those people are now kind of my academic family because mm-hmm. we had no one else and we were very cold. And there was a winter where there were two blizzards in a row and we just sat in my shared apartment with the rest of the grad students for like two weeks straight. We just baked cookies and played board games because there was nothing else to do. Well, and that will bond you. <laughs> <laughs> that will. But you told me you did something really interesting since you moved up there by yourself. You were there a few days before anybody else showed up. Tell them what you did. Yes. Um, there is a moment when your parents drop you off in graduate student housing and you are sitting by yourself and you know that your graduate student roommates are not coming for 48 to 72 hours. And in that moment, I realized if I do not leave this apartment, I will not use my voice for the next 72 hours. So I went out and I walked downtown. Missoula is pretty small and walkable. And I bought a bike at the Play It Again sports store. (laughs) And I remember like talking to the person selling me the bike for kind of a long time because I was like, ah, human interaction. (laughs) Um, Fortunately, Missoula is a place where you can talk to anyone for like 20 to 30 minutes without them ever batting an eye. One time I was on the phone with my husband, now husband, we did long distance at the time. And I was in the grocery store line. I said, I'm just going to set the phone in the basket while I check out. And I accidentally talked to the cashier for 15 minutes. (laughs) And I picked the phone back up and he was like, who was that? And I said, I don't know. He said, how do you not know that you just talked to them for 15 minutes? But that is Missoula as a town. So fortunately, it was a good place to be alone because you're not alone very quickly. But I biked the bike back to my apartment, met my roommates, and it was all good from there. What a great, what a great start to that experience. That's <laughs> yeah. fantastic. So you're here in Las Vegas, uh, junior faculty member, doing a lot of exciting research right now. Tell us a little bit about kind of what your research agenda is. What are you really focusing on these days? And then I want to ask you about some of the classes that you teach, but let's talk research first. Okay, let's do it. So my research to this point has been about emergency management organizations, which are often city and county offices, um, employees of your city and county government who are 
literally tasked with preparing for every hazard that could impact your community. So everything from a fire to a shooting to a big sporting event coming to town, they are told to prepare for all of it. They often get some of their funding from FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency. So they also have to communicate a lot with the state government and the federal government. And I've been really interested in how does that all work? Um, I think there are a lot of jokes at FEMA's expense out there in the world already about their abilities to handle natural disasters. But how do you, as city and county government, handle having to collaborate across all of these levels of power, all of this different money? And then, depending on the emergency you're facing, you need a vastly different set of stakeholders to be involved. So my first set of research was around event security, which involved, you know, whatever the event venue was and a lot of police work. Then I studied wildland firefighting, which involves all of these tiny little fire agencies that have to work together because you have one truck and they have four and these people have two helicopters. And it becomes like an SAT question, right? How are we going to fight these six fires across the state with 400 engines? No, these engines can't go up that hill. These engines can. So there's a lot of communication and negotiation going on. Then I started studying COVID because that is what suddenly every county was dealing with. That's what you do. Yeah. So I watched their virtual collaborations during COVID. So how do we stay apart but still be on the same page when we can't be in the same room breathing the same air? That involved a lot more public health officials, right? And a lot of those folks, if you've been preparing for fires for a decade or several decades, and you haven't had a big flu outbreak, you might not know the public health agencies that well. And they might not know you or why they should trust you and come to your emergency management office. So that was the next thing I did. Then the counties I was researching caught on fire during COVID. And now we had an issue of, I'm still, you can help me think of the the name branding for this. Is this a accumulating disaster? Or is this a cascading disaster where now you have multiple emergencies going on at the same time? And they're, they're starting to kind of interact with each other in funky ways, right? So that's what I've been doing until now. Um, we talked a little before we got on the air. I'm Next, I think I'm turning to risky professions beyond emergency management. Just people who have to deal with risks to life, property, safety in their everyday jobs. How do they manage that differently? And, uh, you know, they might be more comfortable with thinking about risks and bad days and bad things that might happen than the rest of us who are often pretty risk avoidant. We don't want to think about the bad things. So when we talk to those professionals who have to think about the bad things, what can they teach us all about dealing with uncertainty in our lives? I mean, you think about all of us, and as we talked about before we started recording, all of us deal with some form of risk in some way, shape, or form. But these are professionals who do it and think about it at a different level. Just given all of the research that you've done, all of the conversations that you've had, is there one major takeaway that, you know, those of us who don't think about risk professionally, I mean, is there something that we all can learn based upon what you have researched over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that depending on the field, different professions have different obvious advice for you. And one question I love to ask, and I actually ask this of like every Uber driver ever, is what's one thing you wish people knew about based on the job you have? Like what's your expertise and what do you wish people knew about it? And I have such a strong memory. I had a friend who graduated with a public health degree. And I said, what's the one thing you wish everyone knew now that you had this degree? And she said, get a flu shot because the flu is a preventable death. You're passing it to people without knowing. 
and then people are dying. And this is something that if we just would all go get a flu shot, we would reduce so much risk of serious illness. This was pre-COVID, right, that she said this to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, I have a friend who works in cybersecurity. He's definitely all about not reusing passwords, putting your two-factor authentication on. So I think based on whatever your job is, you, you start to have these things that you're like, oh, if everyone would just do this one thing. The thing I see across these professions, and emergency managers in particular are delightful about this, is a real can-do attitude when things are going wrong. Kind of like a gallows humor. Yeah. Of like, oh, of course that would happen today. We already <laughs> have this happening. Why wouldn't this other thing happen? Um, I had an emergency manager say to me once, I don't want anything bad to happen, but if something bad happens, I want to be there. So instead of running away, these are the people who are going to run toward the fire. And I think that that's hard for all of us to practice. You know, if you've ever had that emergency moment where you've seen someone get injured or you've seen a car accident or whatever, we have that freeze moment. And these are the professionals who have trained and trained and trained so that the freeze moment gets smaller and smaller and their decision making gets faster. You know, that makes me wonder, how about you? Do you would you be the one running towards it or how would you handle it? I think it absolutely depends on the situation, but I have, since I started undertaking this research, I found that I am more likely to be the person who says, wait, something's not right here. Do we need to call some emergency services about this? Um, I don't want to get too gnarly, Uh, but I did have a moment where I saw someone get semi-injured at the gym Mm -hmm. and everyone froze, right? Everyone was just standing in a circle staring at this person who was bleeding and I was the first person to kind of snap out of it and be like okay I have to go like there are band-aids at the front desk we can figure this out but it's natural right that we all have this freeze moment and I think that just reflecting on what would I do next time is really useful to think about um, and then you kind of get better at dealing with it and there are classes you can take too Um, one class you can take is called CERT C-E-R-T and that's about community triage efforts so that if you see someone who's injured or if there's like some sort of large-scale disaster where a lot of people are injured, you have basic medical skills where you can help them. You know, one of the things I was interested in is you, it seems like you actually worked with the Boulder... uh, Yeah, the Emergency Management Office. Yeah, the Emergency Management Office there, and they gave you an award. (laughs) They did. I got a sheriff's citation, which sounds terrifying, but it turns out it is an award from the sheriff of the county. This is a citation you want to get from the sheriff. They told me if I keep it in my car, I can get out a speeding ticket, so... Yeah, only in Colorado, though. Yeah, so it's not very useful to me. Uh, We should say that you did your Ph.D. work at Colorado. Yes, University of Colorado. And what was inspiring? Well, you know, what really kind of inspired you while you were there? Well, like many before me, I definitely stumbled into my research track. I said, you know, with my mom and her career, I wanted to study homeland security. But it, it turns out if you want to do ethnography, which is what I do, so that's observing people at work, If you go up to Homeland Security and you ask to come watch what they're doing, they politely decline. Mm -hmm. Um, And my advisor, Brian Taylor, who does excellent um, Cold War studies, um, he suggested, he said, you know, I think there are these, these guys at the sheriff's office who have to talk to Homeland Security. I don't know what they do, but maybe they would talk to you. And that was the emergency managers. Um, And so I went and found them and I, I said, you know, can we talk about Homeland Security? And they said, I mean, Homeland Security doesn't talk to us, but sure, we will talk to you if you want to. And that's when I started to learn about these kind of federal mandates that they're under to prepare for any and all emergencies. But also in the day-to-day, if you're 
Boulder County or even if you're Clark County, you know, how much are you thinking counterterrorism versus how much are you thinking about here, tourist safety or in Boulder, wildland fire far more likely to impact you. So it's part of their job, but it's not everything they do. So I had a lovely cohort mate at Colorado who said to me all the time, Rebecca, what you study is just so tedious sounding to me. All these people in meetings about federal mandates and all these forms they have to fill out. And I said, that's what's so interesting about it. They are doing work that is terrifying. And yet so much of their work is bureaucratic and kind of boring. And they want to do the action hero stuff, but 95% of it is not action hero. And they prefer, even though they they do it and they're in that job, they prefer not to have to do it. Yes. So, Rebecca, tell me a little bit about what you do here at UNLV. You've obviously talked about your research, but one of the questions that we love to ask is, do you have a teaching philosophy or do you have a particular approach that you take into the classroom? Tell us a little bit about you as a teacher. Sure. Um, So the classes I teach are organizational communication, and then I'm also teaching interviewing and self-presentation, which is a class that we made up a couple years ago to respond to student needs to prepare for the job market. And then I've also taught communication theory, qualitative research methods. Next year, I'm very excited. I'm rolling out a class called Corporate Scandal. Um, AKA companies behaving badly and what we can learn from them. Um, So I like to, you know, I think that I do bring kind of the crisis communication, emergency communication stuff to class, but I also am really inspired by UNLV students and what they need. And that's kind of part of my teaching philosophy is what do you need and what do you want to see out of the classes? And I have a real enthusiasm for practical application of communication. Like I said, the theories follow me around and I think that they can follow students around too if you'll just tell them, you know, you might think about this next time you're in a conflict with someone or you might think about this next time you're in a work situation, you can't really read your boss's mind about something. So what I found is that UNLV students are really driven. They're really interested in building their careers. And that's something that I've started to think more and more about in classes is what jobs can we get after this? What products can we produce that can help future employers to see the value of the communication degree? Because a lot of people think they want a communication major, but they also don't really know what they're getting with a communication major. And to me, it's just so practical, so helpful. And what I tell students is, I'm not here to teach you how to write a perfect email or a perfect resume. I'm here to teach you about theories, about how to think about what other people might be thinking, what the context is, what the background is of the people you're talking to, all of the the 360 stuff that goes into designing good communication so that it translates across everything you do in your life in the future. I probably overthink every interaction I have with any person ever, but I do think that being mindful about what other people might be thinking, what they might be looking for, even if it's just like my boss might have not been happy about that because they were hungry, because it was 1130 in the morning. Mm -hmm. But these are the things that I think communication majors bring to the table is an adaptability and an ability to think about how to communicate across every context in their future, because the technology is going to change in five years or 10 years, right? The jobs might change in five or 10 years. But if you can bring that sensibility with you, I think that you're super employable. And that really excites me as a teacher. And I can confirm that her teaching evaluations are very good. (laughs) Oh, thank you. She does very well. And uh, her students um, tend to go in and find jobs and all the key things that we hope for. There was something else, too, that you helped design a new class called Training and Development. 
that we oh, hope yes. to offer soon. Yes, we're, we're starting a new senior class called Training and Development. So a lot of communication majors can go on to do kind of training at the corporate level, development of employees, leadership development, conflict management. So we're hoping to get some real life experience about that into the classroom for our seniors right before they graduate. And, and the other thing that's really interesting is that Rebecca wrote a book and it's on uh, authority. Hmm. And sure did. Yeah. So <laughs> tell, tell us. And here you are with your boss, an authority, us, one might say. Tell us a little say. bit about that authority <laughs> book. But uh, you, you do look at it in an interesting way. So tell us about that. Yes. So it's called Communicating Authority and Interorganizational Collaboration. And it kind of stems from my emergency management research up to this point. And the frame it takes about authority is that we often think of authority as something people hold. You know, you're the boss, so you have authority. But authority is made in our interactions with other people. And one thing that's really interesting in collaborations across multiple organizations is it's not always clear who the boss is, right? Mm -hmm. You bring a couple organizations together, so you have someone's president and someone's CEO at the table, and suddenly the titles don't mean as much as they do when you're in your home organization. So the book looks at how people... Um, kind of produce authority through interactions with other people. And the idea is that we should think of authority as authorship. So when you author what the organization ought to do and people believe you and they go out and do that, you have gained authority in that interaction. So if, if we became an organization, we turn into the podcast club and I say to you both, <laughs> well, we should really meet every Thursday and we start to meet every Thursday. I have staked some sort of claim in authority by saying we, so I'm making us an organization and then I'm giving you something to do and you're agreeing to do it which does not always happen, right? So you also see in collaborations, people reject each other's authority. And it's not as simple as like, I reject you. You do not have authority. It's no, no, no. We agreed in the last meeting that we shouldn't be preparing for that. Or I thought we said we were going to do this. So people kind of also jockey for authority in conversations with each other. So I looked at how people gain authority both through what I called vertical sources, so hierarchy, but also through horizontal sources, which are expertise, experience, the things mm -hmm. people draw on like their relationships with other people that they can use to bolster their authority. And in emergency management, that's where you get the war stories coming in, right? So it's not just who is in charge according to the org chart. It's also who can talk about being here the last time there was a big fire or, well, I was here when FEMA came in in 08 and this is what they said. So you bring all these sources into the conversation as you try to stake your claim on what the organization is doing. This, this is more a question I'm asking for myself. How are you so productive? She is a machine right. when it comes to writing and producing articles and everything else. And I made a book, and she's already working on thinking about a second book. Making us all look bad over yeah, here, Rebecca. Yeah, no, yeah Rebecca, how do, you, how do you pull this off? What is it? Is there uh, some practice that you developed very early on that allowed you to have the discipline to stick to that uh, type, not typewriter, computer? <laughs> And a keyboard, I should say. There we go. Stick to the keyboard and produce this impressive amount of work. Kevin, we can have a whole second podcast called the 30-minute writing practice because the 30-minute writing practice, I'm like a salesperson for it. Um, and it it's around, um, in particular, the, the website facultydiversity.org really promotes this idea that even though as faculty we think 
you know, you should be writing, you know, what, what is our percentage? 50% of your time? Yeah, yeah. Um, 40%. Real, yeah, 40%. Realistically, you can't really devote two days a week to writing. So the idea is you should write in 30-minute blocks, and 30 minutes a day will get you to tenure. And I truly do this. I sit down every day at 9 a.m. and I start writing. And there's no excuses. I write from 9 to 9.30. I do not schedule meetings over it. I don't check email before because that's a good way to raise the blood pressure. Um, and then you really, the second part that's important is stand up, take a break. Because the impulse to binge write, I think we all have that where mm -hmm. we think, oh, I'll just, I'll save myself by writing for four hours on this Thursday. But I don't know about you all if you've ever done one of those four-hour writing blocks, but First of all, I don't write for the whole four hours, right? I write for an hour, and then I'm like, I'm tired. I'm going to check Facebook. And then it's been 45 minutes. And then I'm like, oh, I feel such guilt. I better get back into this document. And then I write for another 10, and then I check my text messages. And you get tired, and you start to interrupt yourself more and more. But then Friday comes around, and you're like, I wrote for four hours yesterday. There's no way I'm going to write today because I'm very tired after that. So... I took a couple of mentoring kind of workshop classes about getting out of that boom and bust writing cycle and instead writing for 30 minutes every morning and then moving on with your day. And if you want to do another 30, you can. But if not, that's that's it. You've done what you need to do. And now you can go answer the emails. I love that because I actually took uh, a class, not a class. It was kind of a, a seminar on writing 15 minutes a day. So I, I really do buy into this, trying to write every day. My problem is, because I started out as a journalist, I love the four-hour <laughs> marathons. <laughs> anyway, but that's great. I, I, that explains a lot of things. Well, Rebecca, I'll tell you, uh, we are lucky to have you in all that you're well, thank producing. You. So it I'm is, lucky to be here. Well, I'll tell you what. You have been... Phen a phenomenal podcast guest. Thank you for coming on to Conversations. But I've learned a lot today. I, I have too. I and, have too. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. I think we should interview you both next. We should have everyone come back in and we'll turn the tables. What do you think? I, you know, I prefer this side. <laughs> it's easier asking the questions than answering the questions. I'll draft my list of questions for you, Kevin. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. Good to be here.